my almost three-year-old daughter and I like to play this game. So whenever she asks me to be picked up, rather than just bending down to pick her up, I kind of make her do a little bit of the work. And by a little bit, I mean all of it. And so what I do is, is I just lean down and kind of offer my neck and shoulder to her. And she's responsible for wrapping her arms around me and holding on as tightly as she can. And then as I just kind of lift my torso up, we see how long she can hold on before her grip loosens. And the other day, she and I were lying in the hammock, just enjoying the sunshine, and, and I hopped out of the hammock, and it's a little bit too high off the ground for her to attempt to hop out of the hammock. And so she said, Daddy, help me out. And, and so I went over, and I just offered her my neck and shoulders, and she grabbed on, and as I lifted up and began to walk away from the hammock, and she slides out of the hammock, she said, Daddy, I'm not holding on very tight. And I said, it's okay, because I'm holding on tightly to you, and, and I wrapped my arms around her. And in that moment, the spiritual implications of that hit me. My first thought was, wow, there's a lot to that. My second thought was, that sounds like a really cliche mo- line that should be in like a sappy movie somewhere. And then my third thought was, I'm going to use it as an illustration anyways. Because in that moment, I realized what a comfort it is to know that the Lord, the creator of the universe, is holding on tightly to those that are his. Even when our grip is not as tight as it should be. So this morning, I hope that our time together will just be a comfort to you and an encouragement to you. That you'll find those things as we work through this passage because the truth is that we live in a very chaotic, broken world. It's full of difficulty, internal and external. There's a lot of brokenness around us. And some of you might be in a season right now of difficulty and some of you might be going into a season very soon. But I hope that as we look at Romans chapter 8 this morning, you'll be comforted. In fact, we'll begin with verse 28, and John Stott refers to Romans 8:28 as the comfortable pillow on which the weary Christian can lie his head. And I hope it'll be exactly that for you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you turn to Romans 8:28. If not, it'll be right here on the screen for you. It says this: "We know all things work together for the good of those who love God." who are called according to his purpose. Now, I would imagine for most of you, this is not the first time you've heard this verse. It's pretty common, and it's really quite popular. In fact, I've even heard people who are are not believers claim this verse as a source of comfort. But I want to remind you that, that this passage is an exclusive promise. There is a qualification here because it's for those who are called according to his purpose. So for those outside of Christ, for those who have not repented of their sin and put their faith in the cross of Christ, we need to be very clear that this promise is not for you. To depend on this promise, to look towards it, would be nothing more than a sense of false security. It's not helpful. It doesn't apply. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have repented of their sins, 
who have put their faith in the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. This verse should be incredibly comforting to you. And it should provide an incredible amount of confidence. When Paul wrote these words, he wasn't thinking, oh yeah, this is going to look good stitched on a pillow somewhere. This will be a good wall picture that we can hang up with a cute font. No, when he wrote this, he was thinking that it would be a very strong source of encouragement for the saints to come forevermore. Not to be taken lightly, but that it would give us great comfort in difficulties and great confidence to move forward. The first question, though, that we have to ask as we look for that is, what does he mean by the word good? He says, all things work together for the good of those who love him. But, but what is this good? How would we define good? What does this good look like in our lives? And, and certainly we could speculate, but that's not as helpful. So we'll, we'll move on, and the next couple of verses give us great insight as to what he means by good. And he follows up by saying this, For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So here we have a little bit of a better idea of what does he mean by this good. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Tim Keller explains it this way. Romans 8.29 tells us the goal toward which all our circumstances are moving us. Paul uses the word predestined. He's not introducing the word to confuse you. He doesn't intend to explain the doctrine of predestination or address the issue that arises when that word is mentioned. He uses this word to comfort us. Something that is predestined is fixed. Count on a promise. What Paul means is that if you love God, you can count on a promise that is absolutely fixed. No matter what. That's all he's trying to get across. And so oftentimes this, this passage can ruffle feathers, but Tim Keller's wise here to show us that the point that Paul is trying to get to at this particular passage is this, that when he says all things work together for the good of those who love him, what he means by good is that we would be conformed to the image and nature of Jesus Christ. The comfort of Romans 8.28 is that all of our circumstances are being used by God sovereignly so that they would help us look more like Jesus. The ultimate good is being conformed to the nature of Christ. Think about that. In every single circumstance in the life of a believer, God is working. And he's using those circumstances to slowly conform you into the image of his son. Consider the personhood of Jesus. Patient, compassionate, caring, gentle, self-controlled, radiant, kind. The promise of Romans 8.28 is that God is using your circumstances to help you become those things. 
Which means he's slowly sanctifying us from our anger and our impatience and our bitterness and our harshness and our rudeness and our selfishness and our materialistic bend. And for some of you, this is an incredibly exciting passage. Because for some of you, you really just hate your sin. And you're kind of tired of living with a person that you don't even like, namely yourself. You're tired of your own impatience. You're tired of your own quick temper. You're tired of your own selfishness. And so to hear that God is working all things to rid you of those properties and help you look more like Jesus is an incredibly encouraging and comforting truth. But let's be honest with each other, and for some of you, you probably feel like I just let the air out of your balloon. Because frankly, you're not very interested in becoming more like Jesus. Frankly, you might be more interested in health, wealth, prosperity. You might be more interested in just living your best life now. You might be more interested in making a a living. You might be more interested in just having a healthy, happy family or more interested in being successful or financially stable. And if that is your ultimate goal, then you're disappointed in Romans 8.28 because that's not the promise. Paul's promise in Romans 8.28 is not a prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel that says if you just love God, then everything in your life will work out. The good that Paul has in mind here is not temporal good, but eternal good. Therefore, if health, wealth, and success is your definition of good then your definition of good is different than God's definition of good. And Romans 8.28 will be of no comfort to you today. If that's what you're looking for. The reality is that Jesus did not suffer so that you don't have to suffer. But Jesus suffered so that when you do suffer, you'll be conformed through that suffering to the image of, of Christ. See, the gospel, it, it doesn't promise that we'll have better life circumstances. It promises that we'll have better life. It doesn't promise that you won't suffer, but it promises that your suffering will never be wasted because God will sovereignly and providentially use that suffering for your good, which means to make you look more like Christ. That's the truth of Romans 8.28. Adoniram Judson is perhaps my favorite missionary. He was an American missionary. In fact, he was the first Baptist American missionary that went to Burma. And one of my favorite things about his story is his peculiar proposal. So when he went to ask permission to marry his hopeful wife by his hopeful father-in-law, he wrote a letter. This is what he did. You guys take notes if you're getting ready to propose. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. 
for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Any of you guys want to lead with that? When you ask your father-in-law for permission to marry his daughter? Not likely. But he did. And it's powerful. And Adoniram Judson's father-in-law, John, he responded and said, I completely leave this matter in the hands of my daughter. May she decide. So Anne was proposed to, and, and she wrote a letter to her friend Lydia, and this is what she said in her letter to her friend. She said, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I've about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here. Sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and go where God and his providence shall see fit to place me. See, Adoniram Judson and his wife, Anne, they understood that Romans 8.28 was not a surface-level promise that everything in this life would be good and easy. But they understood that what the ultimate good is, is looking more like Jesus and helping others look more like Jesus. And so in the comfort and the confidence of this promise, they left what was easy and they did what was difficult, knowing Romans 8, 28 to be true. Trusting that even in hard circumstances, God would be true to his promise. And they did face hardships. They did suffer. They lost six of their 13 children. Adoniram Judson uh, had to bury Anne early in life. And then he actually remarried and his second wife died as well. So this is a man who buried more kids than any man should have to. And a man who buried two wives. But he understood that, that if you have a proper understanding of what is to come, eternally speaking, then you can handle anything that is presently difficult. In the promise of heaven, in the promise of redemption, and in the promise of ultimate glorification and becoming like Jesus... He understood that any circumstances that this world would present of difficulty were very minimal. That he could get through them. Do you believe that? Do you believe Romans 8.28 is the promise not for comfort, but that through difficulty you'll look more like Jesus? And is looking more like Jesus your ultimate goal? Do you even care enough about that? Barna Group did a, a study that shows that amongst millennials and Gen Z, they, they asked people who are regular church attenders to list their future goals. And less than 20% said one of their future goals was to become spiritually mature. Most of the goals were to be financially stable, to pay off debt, for their kids to be successful, to move up in their company, to get a raise, to buy a bigger house, to pay for their house, to spend more time with family. But very few said that my goal moving forward is to look more like Jesus. It's to become more spiritually mature. Do we value that enough? But if you do, 
Romans 8.28 is sweet to you. It's a bold claim that every single thing that happens is for the good of the believer. And Paul substantiates this bold claim with three fundamental arguments. They go like this. The first one is that God will withhold nothing in taking care of you. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? The point he's making here is that Jesus demonstrated on the cross his commitment to you becoming like him. That God didn't even spare his own son. The torturous and gruesome death on the cross for your sake. Why would he stop now? The logic's built on, on Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God demonstrated, he proves his own love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, it says, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will he be saved through him from wrath? Christ loved us when we were broken and now through the crucifixion we have hope and how much more will he provide for us. Tony Marita reminds us again. He says, we should not read this as if Paul were saying, God will give you everything you've ever wanted. Again, this is not a prosperity gospel verse. Paul is saying, God did not redeem you to leave you. He will continue working in you to conform you to the image of Christ. One helpful illustration here is to think of it in terms of greater to lesser. So let's just say that You decide to take your family to Disney. And you save or you get 15 credit cards or whatever, however you do it with your money. And and you you buy the tickets and you buy the place to stay and you travel there and you've spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I don't mean to twist any knife in any wounds if you guys have done this recently. You spend all this money to get to Disney. And you finally get there and and you're driving in the park and you've spent all this money and you've got the tickets and the travel and the gas and the snacks and the place to stay and the the clothes and the the Mickey Mouse hats. And you get there and as you're pulling in the park, it says parking, $20. (laughs) It's probably like $50 now, to be honest. I haven't been in a while. And you say, that's it, we're done. (laughs) And you turn around. I am not spending another penny. I'm not spending $50 on parking. We're done. Turn it around. Let's go. And my guess is that your spouse or the kids in the back seat would say, oh, yes, we are spending $50 on parking. And deep down, you know logically that you are because you didn't spend hundreds of dollars to get there to not pay $50 to park. The point here is that God has already made the big purchase at the cross. He's going to pay for the parking. He's paid the ultimate price already. He'll get you what you need now. That's no big deal. He was willing to send his son to the cross. He's willing to provide for you in this season or in the season of difficulty to come. The cross is what assures us of ongoing, unfailing, everlasting love and work in the life of the saints. 
that we see in Romans 8.28. The second argument is this. God will allow nothing to condemn us. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. It's important to understand here in the framework of Romans that Paul has spent a significant amount of time showing us that the greatest threat to us as humans is the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Our greatest potential danger, it's not cancer, it's not bankruptcy, it's not loss of reputation, it's the coming wrath of God on the day that you breathe your last and come face to face with him. That is the greatest threat. Romans 2 is clear that each day we live on by God's common grace and do not repent. We are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment to come. Romans 3.23 is clear that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short. Romans 6 is clear that that falling short is punished by eternal death and wrath. This is our biggest problem and threat. Some of you might have wandered in here this morning because of a difficult circumstance that you're trying to to get some relief from. And, And I don't minimize that circumstance. It matters to us and it does matter to God. But that problem is nothing compared to the problem of the wrath of God on the day of judgment. But get this, if, if you're in Christ, your greatest threat has already been eliminated. There's no condemnation. Ephesians 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. It means the answer to the rhetorical question here that he asks is, Who is the one who condemns. The answer is nobody. The answer is that there's comfort in Romans 8.28 because you can realize if you are in Christ, your greatest threat in all of life has already been eliminated. That is comfort and confidence. To know that the worst thing that could possibly happen cannot possibly happen. You've been declared righteous justified. So what else could go wrong? The worst is already out of the way. The third reason he gives us to substantiate this claim of Romans 8, 28 is that God will allow nothing to separate us from his love. He asks the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. When Paul lists these things, affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He's not just listing things that he thinks would be bad. He's really giving us an autobiographical story of his entire life. If you turn to Romans 11, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, and verses 25 through 27, this is uh, Paul's account of what he's been through at this point. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Does anybody want to try and one-up Paul here with your circumstances? And yet, as he goes through this list, he comes out and says, no, I'm not just a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror. I'm not just surviving, but I am thriving because of the promise of Romans 8, 28, that because through all of those things, I had comfort and confidence that God was somehow using it for my good which is to ultimately make me look more like Jesus. And looking more like Jesus is far better than comfort and food and clothes and whatever else I could want. Therefore, in these circumstances, I've found comfort and confidence. This means that for the Christian, not only can we have comfort in times of difficulty, but we can have confidence in times of difficulty. Imagine if we lived with that type of confidence. When I was doing student ministry in Fairhope, Alabama, uh, there was a student that was much hardier than I am, big guy, football player, and I challenged him to an ice cream eating competition one night before church. And so we set it up, we got our big bowls of ice cream, whipped cream, cherry on top, and going into it, I felt incredibly confident. In fact, I don't think that I I would have challenged him to this unless I knew that I was gonna win. Because that's the kind of role that confidence plays in our lives. The reason I knew I was going to win is because I gave myself vanilla ice cream and in his bowl I put frozen mayonnaise. (laughs) That's pretty dirty, isn't it? He had no idea. So we start the competition and I'm just crushing this ice cream. And he's kind of like, something tastes funny about this ice cream. But he wants to win so he kind of keeps looking at me like, well, he's eating it. You know, it looks the same. And I won because it was rigged. I knew I couldn't lose. I mean, maybe I could have lost, but it was a very small percentage. I went into that confident knowing I got this. All I have to do is eat ice cream. Imagine if we lived with that kind of confidence, knowing, hey, the victory's already won. It's done. No one can condemn us. Nothing can take away what we have. The victory's already won. We're completely safe. Not a single thing can separate us from the love of God. Our greatest threat has already been eliminated. And we can live in confidence. See, again, the logic of Romans 8, 28, it's not everything's going to be good and safe in this life for you. The point of this confidence and the appropriate biblical response of this confidence is that we would be willing to take kingdom-minded risks in our lives, knowing that we're safe and secure in the hands of the Father. It's the Adoniram, Judson, and Anne, they didn't say, well, Romans 8, 28, so we're going to be comfortable and just fine. They said, because of this promise, we can go into difficult circumstances. We can go into what is uncomfortable. We can take 
risks knowing we're playing with house money. Nothing could happen to us. God's in complete control. The passage, it's, it's not about helping us feel safe about our worldly circumstances. Instead, it's about helping us feel so spiritually secure that we are willing to lean into uncomfortable and difficult circumstances, knowing that the God of the universe is holding tightly to you. With confidence, we can do hard things. With confidence, we can step out of our comfort zone. The psalm that he's quoting here is he says, as it is written in verse 36, he's quoting Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a crying out of Israel in the midst of suffering. And this is not a suffering uh, that's a result of their own sin or problems. It's just a difficult time of persecution. And what Paul wants us to see here is that suffering is normal for the Christian life. We shouldn't expect to just live in a, in a safe worldly, comfortable bubble of Romans 8.28 and thinking life will be smooth. He's showing us that we should expect suffering, that it's normal for the Christian experience, but that this suffering can never thwart God's purpose and ultimate victory. The victory is decisive. Therefore, with comfort and confidence. He, he closes this series of scriptures with a personal conviction. He changes from third person to first person. He says, for I am persuaded. After everything that I've been through, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Imagine if we could live out that confidence. Are you that secure? You know you're safe in the grip of the Father. Even when you're not holding on as tightly as you should, he's holding on tightly. John Chrysostom was an early church father, and he lived in Rome, and his the persecution was going on in Rome. This was a soft persecution. And, and he goes to stand before the emperor. And the emperor threatens him with banishment from Rome if he remains a Christian. And Chrysostom replied, Thou cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. The emperor responds, Well, then I'll slay you. Chrysostom responds again, No, you can't, for my life is hid in Christ. So the emperor then says, well, well, I'll take away your worldly treasures. I'll take away your possessions. I'll make you broken, miserable. He says, my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I defy you because there is nothing that you can do to me. And so it's true for us as believers there is nothing that man can do to you. There is no circumstance. There is no problem. There is no mistake that can loosen the grip of the Father on those that are His. We've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, nothing can condemn us. 
If Jesus was willing to go to the cross, he's willing to provide for you what you need today. And there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. This is the, the heart of Romans 8. It means this for the Christian. Be encouraged. It means that your bad things turn out for good things. It means that your good things can never be lost. And it means that the best things are yet to come. Therefore, we can move forward with comfort and confidence, even in the midst of difficulty.